Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about city-building games. We're talking about building your own little metropolitan area. We're talking about how to, how to put together an incredible city that gets you a lot of points so you win the game. And we're talking to a guy that knows a lot about it, Mr. Ted Allspock, the designer of Suburbia. Ted, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Gabe. Appreciate it. Yeah, man, I'm excited. You're one of the best out there because... You've got one of the best games out there. That's just kind of how this whole game design thing works. I know some people, you know, they, they get super modest. They're like, well, I don't know if I'm one of the best. Well, it's like, okay, Eric Lang, you've got one, all these great games. You're one of the best and quit being modest. And so like, you're in that category. Oh, wait, wait, Eric, Eric who? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you're in that category for me. You've got a couple games in the top 100, well, which very is nice. That's very kind super of you. incredible. Just congratulations on that. Suburbia being one of them, and I'm excited to talk to you about that today. But just real quick, maybe people never heard of you. They don't know who Ted Allspock is. Give me your bio. How'd you get into games and game design and all that good stuff? Sure. Um, like like a lot of gamers and game designers, I've been gaming pretty much all my life. Um, you know, the traditional stuff uh, back in the day, D&D in the late 70s and 80s. And then, of course, uh, you know, as soon as Euro games, as soon as I was aware of Euro-style games, I jumped right in on, on that. And uh, I've, I've been designing games Pretty much all my life, but just not, you know, not professionally until the last uh, 12, 14 years or so, um, you know, trying to make, you know, make it a, a real business or more than just a little side hobby. Um, but I absolutely love board games. I love uh, I love deep strategy games. Um, I like, uh, you know, social deduction games, uh, as most people will, will know me from a lot of the games I've, I've worked on that are in that, that area and a lot of other areas, too. Um, you know, love that. Um Designing games, you know, I think I got really lucky. A couple of my games have done uh, better than expected, and that's allowed me to kind of do this full time, both designing and publishing games. Our company, Bezier Games, we publish uh, some of my game titles and also um, some other game titles from a lot of other great designers. Like we've had games from Freedom and Fries and Tom Lehman, and uh, last year we had uh, Whistle Stop from Scott Caputo, who's an upcoming game designer. And so it's really exciting to be able to work with uh, people like that and uh, be part of the industry this way. Yeah, definitely. And how long ago were you able to make that jump to full time? I uh, made the jump about uh, four years ago, I believe it was uh, 2013 or 2014. Gotcha. And so up until that point, you were doing all this on the side. So you're working basically two full time. We, we say jump to full time. You're already working full time. You just had another full time yeah. gig, right? Yeah, I, I think that's anyone who uh, does game design or anything. You, you, kinda, you say you do it on the side, but you're really... You know, as far as I was concerned, yeah, I had a real full-time job. I worked in uh, Silicon Valley, and I was in product management for different software companies. And, you know, I, I liked a lot of those jobs. Not all of them, but a lot of them. I was very engaged. But I know that, uh, you know, as soon as uh, there's something I didn't care for, that my mind drifted back to board games and board game design. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of mental time probably at those jobs thinking about design and thinking about all the things I'd like to be doing as soon as I got home. Um, yeah. Or on my lunch break or, you know, uh, in the morning before I came in or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's it. And that's that's where really all my free time has been spent. And it's funny when I went full time, uh, I didn't realize uh, that the amount of stuff that I was able to do with that, those that extra time. Just wow. Um, so, you know, it's it's a it's a scary thing to do to jump into any business full time, your own business full time. But boy, for us, it's, uh, it's been super exciting. Both my wife and myself are, you know, full time in our business and we absolutely love it. And, uh, you know, like we said, it's, it's the best job we've ever had. Yeah. Now what's been the best part? You know, I, I think for me, it, it's super exciting. Uh, when I go to cons, we release a new game and, uh, even before the game's released and we're just showing it to people and we have it on the tables and people are playing it and you can kind of see the engagement and the excitement that they're they're feeling from the game. And, you know, it's uh, even the games that, that don't end up doing as well as the other ones, it's still so, it's just very gratifying to see other people um, that are, you know, they're enjoying themselves because of something that, you know, I was a part of that I helped create. And that is, that's immensely satisfying. And I think, you know, I've talked to other game designers and there's something about that. It's It's really... That's that's super exciting. It's great to be able to create. It's great to be able to have it done. But the fact that other people actually are going to enjoy themselves and have fun. And, you know, we get notes. We get notes from kids a lot because of our uh, werewolf games. 
uh, about kids about how much they love the games and how much that they you know they can play with their cousins and their family and their whole and their parents and that's really cool too because you know I know that's a, that was a big part for me growing up was playing board games with my mom and dad and my grandparents um, you know I fondly remember going into my my grandparents basement my grandfather was there we'd play chess we'd play masterpiece we'd play uh, you know crazy aids all sorts of things and you know he was pretty old he was probably in his early to mid 70s at that time and I was in grade school but for me, that was such a that's such a great experience and something, you know, that you get to you hang out there and you're playing a game, but you're talking and you're and, you know, you're just uh, being around other people in a way that you just don't get to do with, you know, something that isn't a board game. It, it's just really nice. So, you know, it's it's great that I'm able to help uh, facilitate that for other people. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's really the best part of this whole gaming thing is that we get to be designers of other people having fun around a table whether it's family or friends or whatever, we get to be part of that process a million miles away. You know, wherever you, you yeah. live in East Tennessee, I live in Honduras right now, and, and we're, work, we're working on things for people all around the world to be able to come together and have fun. And that's just a really cool job, a really cool opportunity. It now, is. It is. I also, you know, it's one of those things that you don't – at this point, yeah, I've been doing it for so long that I, I almost take it for granted, but every once in a while something surprises me. Like I said, I expected conventions, but uh, uh, one of our one of our employees – had a, had a little party right before Christmas at his house. And we went over there and we actually didn't play any games. We were just chatting away with them. But some of his other friends, it was probably maybe 20 people there total, but about there were 10 people downstairs and they broke out a copy of Words and they were playing that. And it was funny because I they were all playing that. I don't know if if, if if many of them knew that I was there or that uh, our Twitch manager was the, the person for that or, you know, that. but just the fact that they're there separate from me, regardless of the fact that they're having fun and they're playing a game that I had something to do with. That's amazing. That's just, that's just awesome. Right. Yeah. Now, what's been the most challenging part or maybe most unexpectedly challenging part of kind of going to this, you know, game design thing only? Uh, well, I think it, it's not really game design only. It's really publishing too. You know, certainly publishing well, I mean, like, for me. Is going from like working normal nine to five into just only into games. Oh, only into games. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I would say that the the extra tasks involved with publishing have been not not entirely unexpected. I did a lot of that in product management, but uh, there is you know I'm responsible for the product from conception to you know final execution and sales you know after it's it's out there and, and end of life for those products who don't do well decided when to pull the trigger and say you know what we either need to destroy these copies sell them off discount or whatever the whole way through and that is that's a lot there's so much that goes into that and uh, you know there's a few people you know you've talked to like Jamie Stegmeyer and a few other people that are doing that you know they both design games and, and publish games and the designing part it's kind of like the fun it's, it's like the fun easy part mm -hmm. and it's, it's certainly not easy there's a lot of time spent and there's there's frustration when things don't work and that sort of thing but uh, boy I'll tell you um, the publishing part is there's a lot of extra work there's a lot of following up with stuff there's a lot of logistics there's um, you know, we were talking right before the show started, we were talking about announce dates, you know, and we're announcing a, a brand new thing. And I want to make sure that I could talk about it on your show without it being there. And I can't keep track of those announce dates in my head at this point. I have to go to a spreadsheet. So that's just kind of annoying because when it was just, you know, if I'm just designing games, I mean, as long as the publisher says I can do it, that's fine. I can just say whatever I went to. But now I, have to, oh, I got to be careful because, you know, we have a we have this you know launch plan and and all that stuff. So there's a lot more extra work that goes into the publishing side. Um that is is less enjoyable it's still enjoyable still love it but it's it's not as enjoyable as the fun game to come up with an awesome game engine and have it work and refine it and refine it and refine it um you know so yeah definitely i am more than impressed by guys like you and jamie and some, some of the others that can do the designing and make great games and then do the publishing and publish great games like it's it's incredible uh, for you guys to all the stuff you have on your brain and, and be able to bring it all together and make it into just a really cool thing i am i am super impressed i do not envy you i do not want that job i do not want to be that <laughs> i am glad to, to not have to worry about all the logistics and supply chain management and all that but yeah, i am fun. i am impressed well cool man well let's get into the the topic at hand let's talk about city building before we get real into it though let's get a good definition how what would you say is a, a you know what is a city building game just according to kind of the way you look at things um yeah well i think a city building game tends to be um you're creating usually from scratch some sort of environment where the the infrastructure of a city whether it's buildings people landmarks the land uh, interacts with other um, components of the infrastructure in some way. And, 
you know, there's uh, all the different city building games, both uh, video and computer games, as well as board games, you know, have different goals and different ways they have you interact. But I think that's that's just the core is you really want those those things that are part of a city interacting with each other um, and in some way, so some way, meaningful fashion it could be super simple. Um, and it also could be, you know, much, much more complex. And there's all the different games that I've played city building games over the years that that kind of you know, vary in scope from one end to the other there. Yeah. And like you mentioned, there's a lot of games coming out every year. You know, this style, you know, whether it's in space or whether it's in a suburb like you did or whatever. Why do you think these games are so popular? You know, I, I think uh, it's the same reason that games like SimCity are popular. There is something about creating something that's that's yours, that, you know, you had a hand in, that you can kind of see it grow and you're making choices about what to make better. And you have, you know, you're, you're making choices because there are certain limitations. You can't just have everything. You have to choose like what's best for your little city that you're building. Um, and when it works, it's incredibly satisfying when it doesn't it's still satisfied in the way that now you've learned that, okay, that was not the direction to go down. Um, and again, you go back to SimCity, which is one of my favorite computer games, uh, that, you know, SimCity is so easy to just restart. It's painful if you've spent hours and hours and hours developing the city, but you can always go back and start again. And I'll tell you, I have started more um, suburbia or uh, SimCity cities, Skyline cities, all the different types of cities again and again and again, trying for that perfect match. But it's never annoying to start. It's more of so exciting that you're just kind of opening up again. Uh, all the possibilities are there. And I think you get that. Certainly, I, I feel you get that with Suburbia. You get that with some other city building games. And, you know, as you're building, you're actually creating something that has its own personality. And, uh, you know, hopefully the game gives you enough flexibility so that you can feel like what you're doing is not scripted. It, it really are is a result of the choices that you're making. Yeah, I think city building games really tap into something that's just natural uh, about human nature, about human creativity. We love to start with nothing and after a certain amount of time have this something that we have created. We have built this thing up. It's something I've noticed a lot on like mission trips when people come and, and they build something, they drill a well, they build a house. And at the end of that week or month or however long they've been there, they can step back and go, wow. We, we created this. Like We all came together to do this thing, and now we have something that used to be nothing. And I think city-building games tap into that in a 45-minute or an hour you know, context, which is really cool. And yeah. I, I don't know, have you, have you done any kind of like reading or, or research into the human creativity, human nature side of things for these types of games? Uh, not particularly, no. No, no. I mean, I just, I know from my experience and from other people's experiences, that's, it's, you know, you can kind of see what people are drawn to. Certain people are drawn to, not everybody likes city game, building games. But, uh, you know, there is that level of engagement and that, um, that you don't get with a lot of other things. And, you know, it's a sim thing, you know, too. There's certainly, uh, you know, people simulations and that sort of thing, um, you know, especially on computers have their own draw to them. But, uh, you know, this it's, it's very personal for, for some reason, too. It's a, you've become very attached to the cities or uh, towns that you're building in these games. And, uh, you know, while you're building them, that's for me, I get totally, fully, 100 percent absorbed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's it, even when I'm playing like the Suburbia app, I'm absorbed. And, you know, my mind is going like, oh, these different things. And this is what I want to do. And here's it's going to go. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll drift off and think. Okay, this is ridiculous. These poor people. I've just placed them next to these all these factories. Of course, they're pissed off, and my reputation is going lower. Um, you know, and I love that that you can kind of get involved to that level in in any game. Yeah, definitely. All right, so let's talk more about Suburbia. Why why this game? Like, where did this idea come from? How did it all begin? Uh, so, definitely SimCity um, is is it, like I said. That is you know by far one of my favorite games. You know, I even. Uh, suffered through SimCity Online a few years ago when that when that came out and uh, stuck with it until they fixed it for the most part, although it still was never fixed completely. Um, you know, I that that's a game I could say this now because it's it's way in the past, but that's a game I played at one of my first jobs, one of my first jobs out of college in like 1990 or something. Um, I had I had a Mac and I was I was using it for desktop publishing stuff. And uh, I had a copy of SimCity on a floppy, a three and a half inch floppy disk on my Mac. And basically I'd pop it in there over lunch and then I'd play past lunch, maybe an hour after that. And then crap, take it out and have to catch up all the stuff that I should have been doing for that, right. that previous hour. Um, you know, it just I was so engrossed and you know, that continued in every new release of the game I, I loved. And, you know, for me, there was a SimCity card game that uh, was put out. Uh, that you know, I actually never played because by the time I started working on this, I didn't want to be too heavily influenced by that. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I actually I have a copy. This is an unplayed copy sitting in a box that I don't want to taint anything because it doesn't have a very good reputation. <laughs> um, it was actually a little bit of a collectible card game. You could buy like different cities hmm. to add to it, yeah. um, which is kind of strange. Uh, one day I'll break it out, I suppose. But as I'm still working on similar sorts of things at this point, it's more of like, I'll just keep it there. I'll, I know I'm going to be disappointed because everyone says it's no good. But, um, you know, uh, for me, it was how can I duplicate something, get that feel of SimCity, the feel of organically creating something. Um, you know, I, I love the economics model. I love the, the idea that, you know, what you have to have this, this great balance of commercial, residential and industrial areas in a city and they all feed off of each other. You need jobs for the people who live there. You need to be able to sell things to the people who live there. You need to manufacture goods for the people who live there. Um, and you need people, of course, to live there. And all of those things, they draw people, they pay taxes, all that stuff. So cool. Um, and, you know, I love economic board games. One of my favorite board games has always been Age of Steam, which mm -hmm. is um, you know, it's yes, it's a tile lane board game, but really at its heart, it's an economic board game. It's a how do I become profitable? Yeah. Um, and I I love that that you know the first four or five turns of an eight turn game, you are losing money, and you are on the edge of bankruptcy constantly. And then suddenly you, you flip the the thing, and you're making money for like the last two turns, and you're so excited. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's cool. That 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 whole idea of you're building up this this engine really, which is that the whole tile lane. It's really it's, it's an economic engine, even though it's you know laid out like tiles and cities and stuff. And you know that's that sort of feeling that I really like. And with suburbia, it's a similar sort of thing where you know, there's a shift from you know boosting up. You need to you know have your income higher so you can have the money to get the things you want, so that towards the end of the game you can boost your reputation and your population high enough to be able to win. And there's a there's a certain point where you have to make that shift. You know, it's kind of the tipping point. And, you know, that for me is really exciting because depending on the tiles you have and how the game is laid out, that tipping point can appear very early in the game or very, very late and anywhere in between. And, um, you know, sometimes there's two tipping points where you're like, oh, no, too far. I've got to go back a little bit. And then, and that's that uh, that's just very engaging for me. Yeah, for sure. Now, what was your process? Like, I assume this idea started just in a notebook and just is, is writing down ideas. But like, tell me about your process of re really creating the game. Yeah, so, um, it, you know, originally it was a square tile game, um, you know, and that's uh, when I flipped to hexes, that was something that made it a lot better. But when I was working on square tiles, it was actually a, a common game where everybody is working on the same city. Um, and you basically get ownership. It's actually funny way is uh, something like just the Palace of Med King Ludwig, which will be out next week, first last week of January, uh, actually has some of that. We're working on one big thing together with ownership markers uh, on there, and that was okay. But it wasn't. It didn't give people a feeling of ownership. It, it made people feel more. All right. Well, I'm working with slash against these other people to build a city. And it didn't quite have that feel that I wanted in terms of, you know, I own this and I've created this or even we've created this um, because there, there was too much um, potential for negative interaction there. Uh, so at a certain point, I switched it to um, everyone developing their own. And then almost at the same time, I switched it to hex tiles. And when I went to hexes, the fact that you could have six different um, hexes interacting with one other hex, um, possibly, that was the thing that kind of changed it over. And suddenly um, that that made the game so much more engaging. And suddenly every text had me or every hex had meaning when you placed it and, uh, you know, kind of went from there. Um, you know, it's developed. I I brought on board a friend of mine, Dale Yu, who is the developer for Dominion. Um, I had done some playtesting for Dominion and some of the expansions. And I was a big fan of Dominion. And, uh, you know, I knew that he was actually in charge of the development process there. And so I asked if he'd uh, jump on board and he did. And, uh, you know, he helped refine the game quite a bit at that point um, through additional playtesting. And, uh, you know, you know, I'm sure a lot of people you've talked to, any game designer, you know, playtesting is huge. Having an a external developer is also huge mm -hmm. for, for games. Having someone who, who has played the game but is not as emotionally attached to some of the aspects of the game as you are yeah. is really helpful because, you know, I, I it's, it's been too far now. It's, it's what, six years, I guess, since it came out uh, that I don't remember all the things, but I know there's a lot of things I was like, Oh no, we can't get rid of that because that's the way it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got talked down off, off of that, that ledge uh, several times and the game is so much better as a result. And, uh, you know, you, you need that kind of back and forth. And, you know, even now um, for the games that we're working on, when we have developers, I'll develop some games that we bring in house for other designers, but I'll also work with other developers um, for uh, both my games, 
Um, like right now we have two different developers working on our Ultimate Werewolf Legacy project. Um, and that really helps because I have a vision and Rob Davio has a vision for what we were doing with the game. Um, but it's really nice to have those developers jump in and go, wait, does this make sense? Really? And then it makes you think through some of the things that you've just taken for granted before. And so having a developer for Suburbia was, was absolutely huge and it definitely took it, um, to the, to the next level. Uh, I think probably about a year before it came out, I was showing it at, uh, playtesting it at Strategicon in LA. Um, I know you said you're in LA for a while, and if you've ever gone to a Strategicon there, they have them a couple of times a year. And uh, so I was there, and uh, one of the, I was a guest there, and one of the other guests was Kevin Wilson. And I don't think I had met Kevin before that. And uh, we played each other's games for various things, games we were testing. And uh, Kevin is the one who actually encouraged me to use the secret goals that are in the game. So there were no secret goals before that. There were other objectives that were more public or a little different. But having them be secret and public at the same time. And, uh, you know, Kevin, obviously, he's an, he's an amazing game designer by himself. And uh, so, you know, it's really nice that that input you get from other people who are looking at your games is absolutely huge. And I think any game that I've had that's been successful, there's been that sort of um, input from, you know, someone whether they're an experienced game designer or developer or just someone who just is in, in enthusiastic about games and they can really help uh, the design get so much better. Um, it's really hard to design a game like kind of with tunnel vision without any other input. Um, you really need that, not just from play testers, but from people who are trying to help you and, and critically think about what can make the game better. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's real obvious when a game is designed in a vacuum versus when it's designed with other people coming in, developers or, or yeah. tons of blind playtesting. Because there's so much value that people bring when you just get their eyes on it and their ideas. And even if they're bad ideas, it still gets you to think about what they're saying, what did they really mean, and that kind absolutely. of thing. Uh, so, yeah, right. so I saw you did, a, which I haven't listened to yet, yeah. you did a uh, podcast with Michael Mahelsek, uh -huh. um, and who does blind playtesting. So we're actually, well, well, by the time this comes out, we'll be announcing that, but we're actually publishing one of his games oh, cool. that he's designed. Um, so, and I know he's just, he's big into developing games and blind playtesting. Um, and it's funny because I would love to have his help for blind playtesting his own game, mm -hmm. but we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's too late for that. That ship has sailed. Right. Um, but that's, I agree. Uh, having as, as much of the, the blind playtesting and that, that feedback um, is absolutely huge. And the games are so much better as a result of that. Yeah, definitely. All right. I, I want to go back to something you said just a moment ago and talk about the difference between hexes and squares. There's lots of city oh. games that use both. I don't know that there's one that's better than the other, but what have you found? You, you know, your game, like you said, uses hexes. Let's talk a little bit more about that and maybe some things that you, you learned or you figured out trying both styles. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for me, one of the things was uh, one of the key components of suburbia is the interactivity that tiles have with other tiles. Right. And uh, specifically with neighboring or adjacent tiles is what we call them in the game. And, you know, with the uh, with with four uh, sides with a you know, typical square uh, tile, you're only going to get four different hexes or four different tiles interacting with that tile. And kind of three because there's one you're already going to attach, at least one you're going to attach to already. Uh, and that's assuming that all of those tiles surrounding it have some sort of interaction value, you know, positives, negatives, whatever, um, for different things. Um, and so that was kind of limiting because uh, it made it kind of made the swings um, for those values have to be they have to be a lot higher because in order to get, um, you know, the benefit of placing something next to something else, well, that those tiles have to come up. They have to be in a place where that one tile has an open space next to it when the other one comes up, that right. sort of thing. And there's just less opportunity for those tiles to interact in a typical square grid as opposed to a hex grid where you have, you know, at least five open spaces when you're placing a new tile. Well, not at least, but typically mm -hmm. um, five or at minimum four, probably. Um, and so I think that really opened up a lot of possibilities, but it didn't open up too many possibilities because there's other shapes that would work that you could actually fit into that would actually be able to do more things around. Um, but uh, that would have been probably too many choices, but you know, a, a lot of times anywhere between four and seven is a really good for me, optimal number of choices for people to make in a game. And, uh, you'll notice that the suburbia, uh, the market board has seven tiles on it. 
that you can choose from. Um, you can place your tile, of course, in any number of spaces, but when you're, you decide you want to place it next to a certain tile, you're going to have up to five places to place it next to an existing tile. Um, so you're kind of in what I consider that sweet spot of that decision making. So you know, once you make a decision to go in a certain direction, then you know, it doesn't branch out into a thousand things. Then you're limited down to that four to seven kind of sweet spot of, of choices there. Gotcha. And that makes a lot of sense. It's all about player choice and giving the player options, but not too many options so that it kind of becomes analysis paralysis. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess also with your game, it's so heavily based on the interaction between the tiles that are touching and things like that. Some games, some city building games that you don't have as much interaction. There's, it doesn't matter as much what you're next to necessarily. And so it wouldn't matter as much to use a square. Am I, am I thinking right? Oh yeah. 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 Definitely. Like, um, uh, was it sunrise city? Mm-hmm. It's probably one where, the locations of the tiles aren't nearly as important as the tiles themselves and when you get them. Right. Um, and that's square because it doesn't really matter as much. Quadropolis, a little bit of interaction that way, but again, more so about the tiles you have and the spaces you're filling in versus, you know, the adjacencies. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's the case. And that's a reason for hexes is to um, uh, increase the interactivity you have between the tiles themselves. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about tiles versus cards. I mean, just as many games that use tiles, other, you know, just as many use cards. And so why did you choose tiles and did you try cards or tell me about that? Yeah. Never tried, never tried cards with this. I mean, for me, this was uh, clearly for me, it was build a city and tiles were the way to do that. It didn't make sense to have cards because, you know, things are being pushed up against the edge of something else. Um, and so you kind of needed that, that uh, three dimensional thickness that you have in a tile. Um, so there was really, for suburbia at least, there was really no no concept ever of using cards for that. Um, you know, um, you know, Machikoro is a city building game ostensibly uh, that uses cards, but that has absolutely no no bearing on cards that are next to each other. You can put your tableau of cards out wherever you want to; it does not matter. Whatever order you put them out to, it's fine. It's all going to work the same. Um, and I think if it was that sort of a game where you're really building up an engine with different capabilities that they may interact with each other, but their location uh, relative to each other doesn't matter, then cards might make more sense. In this case, location is really, really important. Um, location, location, location. Um, not an alternative possible name for the game, but maybe it could have been. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So let's talk about things that didn't work. Uh, you talked about how you tried the squares and they didn't work. Any other things that you, you from the early stages, middle stages, even late stages that a developer came in and was like, yeah, that's not going to work. Tell me about some of the things that you cut out. <laughs> uh, it's funny. A lot of stuff that got cut out was cut out because of complexity. So uh, the border tiles didn't really exist in playtesting, but dual hexes did. Like, um, I'm trying to think. My mind's blank right now, but there's other games that have dual hexes, dual hexes like hexes that are attached to each other. Um, and... It, that it seemed like a really good idea because you gave some other possibilities, but uh, it was just it was a little overwhelming I think for people uh, in general, and so we pulled those. Those ended up being borders in Suburbia Inc. the expansion. So you know we basically shaved one side off, and it's kind of like four halves of a of a hex uh, to form an edge of a tile or of and it kind of edges or constrains your your city that you're building. Uh, that was one thing. Uh, certainly fifth player. Um, had a fifth player for testing for a while. Um, for quite a while, actually. That's probably pulled towards the last couple months of development um, just because we realized in order to have a fifth player make it successful, we'd have to have more slots on the market board. Uh, we'd have to increase the level of interactivity because there was definitely a potential for downtime. Um, usually the interactivity in suburbia, most of it takes place when it's your turn. Now, it does happen that when someone else is turning, like, for instance, um, you know, you'll get more income for every airport uh, that you have. Uh, but for restaurants, if you have the fancy restaurants, you lose an income when there's any other restaurant anywhere in any of the different sit, uh, boroughs in, in the big overall city. And so you had to pay attention for, for a few when it wasn't your turn. But most of them you didn't. Most of them you really cared about how the tiles were coming out that way. And uh, with three or four players, that's fine. You don't have a lot of time between your turns and you can kind of watch what's going on. With five players, when you were done, the, the tiles on the market board were kind of gone by the time it, it came back to you. And so, you know, you couldn't plan ahead a lot, you know, right after your turn. So that, that turn after yours is kind of a dead space for you. And that's the time people would jump on their cell phones or just do other things uh, until it was you know closer to their turn. So getting rid of the fifth player, I think definitely helped. Um, oddly enough, we put a fifth player back in with the Suburbia five-star expansion, but that was, again, a lot of demand for fifth player. People wanted a fifth player, and we added um, some additional, I mean, that's complexity, but just some additional interaction 
in terms of uh, player order and a few of the other things that are in Suburbia 5-star that weren't there before that we really didn't want to bog down the original base game with. So if people want to do 5-player, they have a way to do it now. Um, you know, And it depends on your play style. If you have a group of 5 people, hey, you're able to enjoy Suburbia, and it's a very similar experience to the original, but slightly different. Um, if you don't care, then by all means, don't don't go, oh, we should always get a 5th-player, because maybe that's not the best way to play in terms of you know the base game and the base way to, to play the game yeah i think that's a great way to do it i wish more publishers right. would take that approach as opposed to saying ah that fifth player it's good enough we'll leave it in that's fine i wish more publishers, yeah i wish more publishers would say you know we're gonna cut this maybe we can do it later but let's do it right as opposed to just yeah. throwing it together uh, thank you <laughs> yeah so you know it's it is that is a tough thing to do because you you realize you're as a publisher, you're you're hurting sales. Yeah. You're, at least in your mind, you're hurting sales. You're really benefiting sales if the fifth player version is not good. Because what will happen uh, inevitably is people will try to play your game with the most with the max number of players the first time they play. Um, they're like, oh, we got this new game. Everyone's like, oh, it's great, it's a new game. They all sit down, five players. They're learning the game. Well, it takes longer than normal because it's the first game. They've got five players, so it takes longer than normal. Um, and if it's not optimized for that anyway, it's not as much fun. So you've got five players who are disenchanted with the game right off the bat and that's not good so you know as far as i'm concerned that top player count number should be optimal um with the exception of the ultimate world game that we published that does up to 75 players which 75 is not optimal and it's more of you could do this if you wanted to right we recommend against it in the rules but you could um so but yeah and for suburbia for castles uh, Colony, uh, those were all limited in Palace. They're all limited to four players. Mainly, you know, they've all been tried with five, and it was just, you know what, there's just too much downtime in the sort of you know, turn-based game where a lot happens on someone's turn that may or may not impact other people directly. So, Yeah, but you, you bring up a great point, something to think about. The first play is so important, so pivotal to whether it's going to get a second play or, yeah. you know, give it another shot. And so if that first play isn't fun, if it's not optimal, if it's not good, you, you run a, a good chance of it not being pull it off the shelf again because there's a lot of great games to play and so if you're not having a good first experience good luck yep yep totally all right so let's talk about scoring and because i mean gosh there's so many different ways to score in city building games and like you use reputation and population and those are, are pretty uh typical but there i mean there's a bazillion different ways to do scoring in one of these games so what made you determine okay this is how i'm gonna do it and then tell me just about that process of, of getting it right so I think one of the things early on, probably one of the very first things that was, it certainly wasn't final, but the concept of basically those red bars that you run across in the score track, uh, that was there in Serbia. And that kind of drove a lot of things. And that was, again, this idea that, you know, when you're playing SimCity and your city gets to be a certain size, it's hard to pay attention to the details anymore because now you've got like this overall, there's like so much going on and it's, it's, it'd be nice to have like, people handling that stuff well there's there's costs involved with that you know that doesn't come for free uh the bigger you get as a as a company a city government whatever there's you need more middle managers you need there's there's excess costs that go involved and so those bars basically represent that that every time you get to a th certain threshold in population uh you, it's now going to cost you more and your reputation goes down because you're not in this nice little hamlet that everyone wants to go visit because yeah. everyone has to come visit visit it now so now it's filled with tourist shops and all the other stuff that are not as engaging for people who want to go there in the first place so that goes down a little on your reputation and it costs you more money to manage all that so that goes down too and uh, that by itself i think for scoring i hadn't seen anything else like that and that's that for me is pretty exciting that was kind of uh you know uh, of the anything that's innovative in the game that's probably the one i'm the most proud of which is you know as your population increases the game gets harder and it kind of automatically is you know it, it's not a a lot of people call it a catch-up mechanism i i don't really think it's that um it really uh you know i mean certainly not thematically it's not a catch-up me mechanism uh but what it is is it's it requires you to think about how you're going to be building the future because, you know, basically when you turn over the, the reins of your, your city, when you're no longer mayor, which is the end of the game, uh, when you turn it over to someone else, you do want to have maximized the potential at that point. Then the, the next mayor can deal with all the crap that you set up. But at, up until that point, you want to optimize that and make it as awesome, you know, best reputation, the most people and earning the most money as possible. And trying to get to that point is very, very engaging when you know you have these things coming against you that the more people that move there, the worse things are off are going to be for you and the harder it's going to be to keep things growing. 
Yeah, and I love how the theme and the mechanics line up perfectly here. Like you said, this this represents it costing you more as you scale up. Everything else scales up, your cost included. And because so, I mean, talk about catch-up mechanisms. I played some games, and it's like, wait, what? Why does the last player get to do this to the first player? Like, I, yeah. I don't know. This is okay because you're not good at the game. You get this advantage, and so and it's not always like that. But sometimes it could be perceived that way. But with the way you did it, it makes sense. It's like, yeah, of course, this would cost me more because look how big my city is. It makes a lot sure. of sense. And people don't feel like they're being caught up, and the person in the lead doesn't feel like they're necessarily being pushed down. This is just the cost yeah. of business, so to speak. And I think that's a really good way to do it. Yeah. Now, tell me about your playtesting process. Let's talk just your general playtesting process, and then we can get kind of into the how you did it for Suburbia. Okay. Um, so in general, it depends. Uh, you know, first thing I want to always do is do solo playtests, which is I will uh, set up on one of our tables, um, you know, the dining room table uh, or a gaming table. I'll set up the certain number of players. Sometimes I'll even do a single player, depending on how early it is in the design process, but. Uh, usually a couple players, two or three players, and I'll start running through the turns and basically taking the turns for each player and seeing how things work. Um, you know, it's very difficult to do that sort of thing with social deduction games <laughs> because you kind of know all the information. Right. But with the city building game and you know, castles and palace and those sorts of games, it actually works out really well. You can actually do that. It's it's very taxing. Um, you know, I don't know how much of that you've done solo play playing, but the more complex the game, yeah. it is it. It tires you out. I mean, it right. is just mentally exhausting. Um, so I would try to do one or two of those um, solo play tests. And as I'm doing it, I, you know, I'll, I'll keep a piece of paper and I'll take lots of notes. Um, sometimes I'll have, you know, that'll be basically when the rules are just starting to congeal enough that I have kind of the list of the rules so I don't forget things or so I'm making sure that, oh, I should really put that in the rules. I'm just assuming that that's how it works. So I'm going to write that down. But I'll make all the notes about things, excuse me, the things that I don't like, the things that are working well, um, and you know things I need to totally fix and change for whatever reason. And once I get to a point where I think it makes sense for other people to to play it, I usually drag either my kids or my wife in. Now my right. kids are off at college, can't do that as easily. So now it's my wife. She gets she has to suffer through the early early play tests, um, and that by itself, just having one different person is incredibly useful and you know she, my wife has learned to be really really tough about this stuff and uh, which is good you know um she's definitely like oh this is wonderful you know if i, I played this with my mom my mom loves everything she's like oh this is great i'm like you're gonna help to me okay it's i, I should never have played it with you <laughs> but my wife's awesome because she'll be going okay you know what it felt like i was I was working, I was, you know, carrying rocks back and forth. That's what it felt like. And I don't think carrying rocks back and forth is very fun. Do you? And I'm like, okay, you got a point there. It's not. Um, and, you know, she can be really harsh. And, you know, I think uh, Castles was a good example of where she was like, yeah, I get that we're building a, you know, at the time it was it was mansions. It was called mansions. I get that we're building a big mansion, but there's no fun. It's just we're building this thing and there's no fun. And, um, you know, find find the fun, which is, is a common thing that she will say. Um, you know, there, there's some, there's something here, but what you've created and what we just played, that wasn't it. Yeah. Um, so to so get to that next level. So a lot of times she's the first person that'll, you know, it's the reality check of in my head, this is all great. It's all working well. And I have a vision of how I think it's going to play out. And, uh, you get one other person in there and that can just startle you back to reality. Sometimes that'll kill the game entirely. Sometimes it'll set you on the right track. And so the stuff that's published that usually that's what has set me on the right track typically, um, you know, and then, you know, I, I may go back to more solo play testing. Um, you know, I'll, I may shelve the game for a while. So everybody was shelved for about a year and a half, uh, in between the square tiles to the hex tile, um, chunk of play testing. And, uh, you know, whenever the epiphany happened, that it was like hex tiles and that it took off. But, uh, yeah, uh, you know, we do, we do that, that sort of play testing. Then I'll have other people typically, well, now it's it's coworkers now, people who work for us or uh, friends that that do work for us. Uh, and then we'll go to a game group. You know, once we get past that level, we'll go to the local game group where we know people. Uh, and then after that, it's on to all right. We need external blind playtesting, so we have some people that do uh, playtesting for us remotely, that oh, we can get much more honest feedback from it. I'll usually take the author or the designer's name off of it, whether it's mine or someone else's, because that can bias people. Right. Um, and usually I'll position it as this is a game where we're thinking about publishing. What do you think is something we should continue with and follow through and give us your thoughts and trying to make it as, uh, you know, I 
can't be as in, I can't appear to be as invested in it as I really am to them right. because you know if I'm like oh my god this is really cool tell me what you think about it if you say <laughs> anything mean I'm going to be heartbroken because I probably will be um, but that's the great feed and you want to get that feedback as a game designer and a publisher you want to get that now you don't want to get that when the game is out there you don't want to have people going wow what were they thinking clearly no one else ever played this um, because it's it's no good at all. Um, you still get that sometimes, even after playtesting, you, you never know. But but you'll get a lot less of that the more that you playtest with different groups. Yeah, for sure. And I know, me personally, and I think this is something a lot of other designers experience, it's sometimes really difficult to know whether your game is fun or not. Because when you're testing it, you know everything, and you're not thinking about uh, things the same way a, a normal just gamer that sat down at a table would be thinking. You're, you're thinking, okay, is that card going to come out, and is this, is this mechanism working quite right? And you're thinking, like, how do I change this or that? And so sometimes it could be difficult just to step back and go, Are we, is, this, is this fun? I don't, I don't know if this is fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think um, it's not just what people say. It's observing people when yeah. they play, too. Right. Um, you know, that level of engagement that they have um, – the the game that we're publishing from from Michael um, Mihilsik, um is it's another tiling game, and it's I think it's a it's a fantastic game because I'm biased obviously we're going to be publishing it, but um, it's one of those things where I really I think the game's awesome, but getting we've gotten in front of a lot of people we've done a lot of playtesting now and we're seeing that level of engagement from people that is they're just they're focused they're like oh okay all right I want to see what's going on here I want this next thing I want to be able to do that. And that's really good because whenever they're they're focused so much on uh, some of the aspects um, in, in a, it had this more with castles than we have with suburbia. But in castles, we noticed that the first time people play, they kind of don't care about points. They forget about scoring. Mm-hmm. They're they're more about like, OK, that's a cool room. I get a cool thing when I do it. Doesn't matter if it's the right thing to do. There's like the goals could be totally opposite of that. They're like that's what I want. That's going to look, that's going to be awesome to have, you know, the bottomless pit right off of this bedroom, because that way when I'm done with my guests, I can just shove them down there. I don't know, whatever, <laughs> or the sheets, I can put them down there, whatever. And just in their minds, they already have their, they're building up a story. They're building up a, a reasons to do things and they're thinking about things and the scoring and winning is not top of mind. And that I think helps a lot too. Um, you know, when you see that in people's, uh, you know, the way that they're playing and you can kind of get a sense for that. And when it comes to scoring, a lot of times they're surprised. They're like, oh, oh, I didn't realize that that was part of the score. And I'm like, yeah, we talked about that in the beginning, but you were clearly focused on this other stuff, which is cool because they're so engrossed with the other mechanics of the game that the I want to score the most points wasn't kind of overshadowing everything and taking, you know, sucking a little bit of the fun out of the game. You know, obviously for most competitive games, you do want to have the most points or the most something money, whatever to win. And that, you know, the more you play, the more you're going to kind of refine that and get better and better. But that first game you play, for a lot of people, it's not really about that. A lot of people are just kind of like, this is fun, this is interesting. And, um, you know, you want to kind of keep that in mind. That people, as they're, you know, every tile they place or card they play, are they, you know, are they enjoying that aspect of it? Or are they doing it just because that's going to be more points specifically? And it's like, oh, it's the right thing to do because it's more points. <laughs> that's not as fun as in this is a cool thing to do. And I get something else from it. That might be points, it might be something else. Yeah, that's one thing I've found is, is figuring out – it can be difficult to figure out how to kind of push your players to do the things that are fun that also help them win at the same time. Because sometimes, like you said, those things aren't the same. And, and trying to figure out through playtesting how do we get those things on the same path, it can be a real challenge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, and again, playtesting is the thing that, that helps you learn that. And uh, as I said, it's it's watching the players. It's watching them, how the, how engaged they are, watch their expressions. Uh you know, I am very familiar with the I wish this game would end soon expression because yeah. um, it's my expression on a lot of games that I play, you know, <laughs> published games that I play. And I and I, I don't hide it very well. People are like, well, you're not having fun. I'm like, oh, OK, awkward. Um, it wasn't very obvious there. Hmm. Uh, but you'll see that in a lot of people um, where they're like they're overwhelmed with the rules or they're just like, you know, the middle of the game. And it's just not there. It just doesn't isn't working for them at that point. Um, and so I think as a game designer, it's really important to kind of be aware of that. And I think my, my work on social media games has really helped me with that, just reading people and trying to understand what they're, what they're thinking and kind of what their intent is. Um, and that, that really helps the game designers definitely pay attention, not just what's said, but actually how the game is being played. And, uh, you know, don't, don't think, oh, well, it's the first game, you know, of course they're going to be confused or they're going to be frustrated. You know, just just watch that and look for patterns. Look, always looking for patterns of this happened before. Like, you know, there are anomalies. There's going to be people who 
do weird things or say weird things or don't like certain things. And, you know, you shouldn't ignore that. But again, you don't want to act on every one of those little things. It's when you start to see that multiple times, um, you know, it sometimes it manifests itself the same way, sometimes in different ways. And uh, you have to realize that that's something, you know, hopefully you can change that in the game or address it in some way. Um, you know, so. Yeah. Now, what were some of the major or the other major insights that you gained from playtesting Suburbia? Um, you know, I, I think uh, part of it was the, the, the interaction that people had on that market board in, in terms of what they could do to other people. Like some people call it hate drafting, which seems so extreme because it's not really hate drafting, but it kind of is. And uh, giving people the power to, you know, that when they play certain tiles, uh, they have the ability to get rid of another tile from the market board if they pay, you know, if they pay for it or just one that's, that's on the end there. That was a huge step because before that, it felt like the limit, the, the amount of interaction was really limited. And yes, they could take a tile from someone else, but they had to pay for it and use it themselves. And a lot of times that wasn't the best thing for them. And by giving them that ability to actually, um, you know, get a tile they needed and also deny someone else something for a strategic purpose, even if it cost them to do that, that a lot of times that that helped uh, quite a bit. And that was one of the things that, um, you know, you could sense that frustration in people going, oh, well, you know, what can I do? You know, they're just going to get that tile. I don't want to take it because then that wrecks my game. Um, and uh, we gave them kind of an out, a way to do that, um, you know, still may cost them something. And, you know, it doesn't cost the, if it's a four player game and they want to stop the person to their, their left from doing that thing. It's going to cost them and not the other people. But it's not wrecking their game. They're still able to do something that helps them while affecting someone else uh, in a way that, that hopefully advances their own personal goals. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, awesome, man. Do you have any advice for somebody who's working on a, a city building game right now? What would you tell them? Um, again, I think, you know, for me, it was definitely all about the theme. It was really, how can I, how can I get, and again, I was thinking the feeling of SimCity and that, that kind of the creation and the zones. I really love drawing out those zone areas there. Um, you know, if there's something you love about a game or something you want to kind of invoke that sort of a feeling, go for that first. The mechanics tend to, to fall into place more often than not uh, in terms of, of what it is you want to do. If you start out going, I want to do a tile lane city building game, that might work. But uh, in general, it's more of what's what do you want to accomplish? You know, what what... What do you want people to feel? What do you want to feel as you're playing the game? And uh, I think the mechanics kind of just naturally fall into place from there. Sometimes you won't find a mechanic that works. And that just means, well, that particular thing you may not be able to do. But um, at least you know that ahead of time and try instead of trying to come up with a theme that works for these mechanics that you've come up with that, that work well together. Yeah, awesome. One more thing I want to get your thoughts on. We were talking about this before the show and how, you know, if, if you had told yourself 12 years ago that you were going to have two games in the top 100 on BGG and you were going to be able to do this full time and have your own company and all that, it, you'd have thought it was crazy. So yeah. what would you say to somebody who maybe is just just now starting out, maybe they've been doing this for a year or two and they're just kind of struggling with kind of, gosh, I don't know if my games are any good. I'm not getting anything picked up by publishers. What would you tell people just to kind of help them keep going? You know, I think uh, all the people who are you look at who are overnight successes, um, and I think a lot of people will look they'll look at Jamie Stegmaier and go, oh, wow, you know, overnight success. Well, not really. I mean, Jamie's published a bunch of games by now, and his games have done better, better, and better up until Scythe, which did amazingly well, and Charterstone, which, of course, has done amazingly well. Um, you look at most other game designers, they're pretty much like that. You have a few people who just pop out of nowhere, um, like... Um, the designer of uh, Dominion or a few other people. But even that, the, uh, he was actually designing games for a long, long time before that. He just happened to get picked up and no one knew it. Um, so this is something that takes a lot of time. It takes, I mean, if you love designing games, keep designing games, submit them to publishers. If you don't get accepted, that's not a failure. That's a learning process. That's, you know, hopefully they're going to get some feedback from those publishers as to what they didn't like it. You know, one of the things that I do whenever I get a submit, we don't, takes open submissions from people we usually ask them to supply a little paragraph about what the game is but when we actually do when you're going oh that's interesting enough we get it we'll reject most of those that we do get but i try to outline you know we've played the game and i'll try to outline this is why we didn't take it and if, if publishers will do that for you you can ask most of them will if they have time the big ones may not but most of the you know medium to small publishers will take the time to you know give a little feedback on that um that's that's absolutely huge um the more games that you design, the better they're going to get, I think, for the most part. You know, it's like I said, I've been designing games for most of my life. The ones that I designed when I was a kid 
I don't think they're playable. Probably. I don't think they I'm sure they were ridiculous. Uh, I know there's a, in the nineties, there was a trivia game I was working on, which was really stupid, but man, I was obsessed with it. I thought it was going to be awesome, but it's because I worked on all those games over time um, that I've been able to design things, I think better now. And also I think overall the, the the starting point that I have right now is much better than it was certainly 10 years ago when I started on different things, um, because I'm able to kind of conceptualize a little better about how things are going to fall into place. But it, it's a lot of time. Um, it's a lot of time. Um, it's easy to get to feel discouraged, but you shouldn't be because again, like I said, even a rejection from a publisher is, is information that you can use to go, okay, as long as you know something about why they said no, that's great. Um, feedback from playtesters about why they didn't like things, that's really useful. If everyone likes likes everything you do, you're just super, super lucky, and you're really not getting better. But when it's people that are that are giving you constructive feedback that you're going to improve over time. And, uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. You know, a, a lot of it, I think, is it's luck and timing uh, in terms of if a board game is successful, things just fall into place um, that way. So... Uh, you know, if, if you just happen to get lucky with something with a certain game, you know, um, Matt Leacock was incredibly unlucky because Pandemic came out the same time, the same year as Dominion. He would have won the SDJ had it not. They're yeah. guaranteed he would have won any other year. Because you look at the games that won before that and after it, they weren't even close. Right. Um, but Dominion happened about that same year and Dominion kind of just took the world by storm in 2007 or 2008, whenever that was. Um, and so, you know, a lot of it is timing and luck. And it doesn't mean that your game is necessarily bad. It means it's just not the right game for that time and keep working on those game designs and working on new things and you know if it's not working there's it's it's not a bad thing it's not a failure to shelve it and go on something else because maybe later on you're going to come up with you know an aspect of that game that's going to be used somewhere else um in a later game that actually does get published or does a lot better for you yeah for sure and i think it's really important for everyone to realize that typically it takes years to become an overnight success like it just takes a long time for you to become out of nowhere, allegedly, that just doesn't happen. There's, there's been a great deal of, of work and time and effort. Uh, yeah. I think it was Ray Lewis who said, you know, people who want to work hard, greatness will chase them. But it might take a little while for the greatness to catch you. <laughs> you know, and so you just got to keep grinding, keep working, and, and keep trying. Well, cool, man. Yeah. Well, I'm so so glad you came on the show. We're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about tile placement games. You've got, okay. you know, you mentioned the Castles of Mad King Ludwig, and I want to get your thoughts just briefly on how those games come together. Again, Ted, really appreciate you coming on the show, and good luck with everything you got going on right now. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?